Hi, this is Tim Rood. Welcome to the latest edition of On the Hill. All right, so I have my uh, guest today is an old friend, former colleague of mine from Fannie Mae, David Dworkin. Dave is the president and chief executive officer of the National Housing Conference. This is the nation's oldest housing coalition. Prior to joining NHC in 2018, Dave was a senior policy advisor at the U.S. Department of Treasury. He advised Treasury officials on matters related to housing and community development, and he served as a member of Barack Obama's Detroit interagency team, where I know Dave had a ton of success and a bunch of great stories about it. He also managed, while he was at the Treasury Department, uh, the Capital Magnet Fund, does a ton of good. He served a number of leadership positions at Fannie Mae, which is where we met. And Dave was also, remarkably so, a freelance correspondent and photographer for the war in Afghanistan. I won't date you, Dave, but it was a little while ago. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yes, not to date myself, but the uh, bad guys were the good guys and the good guys were the bad guys. God bless you. And uh, yes, thank you for that. Hey, David. So, I mean, I didn't know some of these things. I mean, we've known each other for a minute, Mm -hmm. but I love your background. So much of it was so so surprising to me. So, So take me through like how a kid from Detroit ends up as a war correspondent. You were a photojournalist in Afghanistan and then to the State Department, ultimately turning around this prestigious, I guess, 100-year-old association in NHC. How did this all come about, Dick? So thanks for having me on the podcast. We um, have the benefit of many years of being involved in housing together, but my involvement with housing really was quite accidental. And I uh, was always meant to be in foreign policy. I started as a foreign correspondent, as you mentioned, and then went to the Hill and the State Department, where I worked on Latin American affairs. I always like to say that housing is easy um, because since I got involved with housing, I've never had to tell anybody to close the torture chamber under the runway. So it's pretty mild in comparison. But I worked for a guy named Bob Zellick at the State Department, and he went to Fannie Mae as their general counsel and recruited me over there. And I told him, you know, the only thing I know about mortgages is I just got my first one. But he said he would teach me about mortgages. I had other skills he felt like he needed. And I fell in love with housing and never looked back. So I've been doing housing since the early 90s. And the beauty of housing is that in addition to being the foundation of the American dream, it actually weaves through all other aspects of the economy in our lives. And so it's been not just incredibly fulfilling, but for a guy like me with a short attention span, there's always something new to focus on. There's certainly no shortage of issues these days. So I'm certainly sympathetic and probably anybody listening is relatively sympathetic about the mortgage and real estate markets. So, I, I mean, you, you're you clearly and kindly being modest. The, I don't think, well, let's take a minute at least to address and acknowledge what the National Housing Conference sure. really is and as a proper setup. So, I mean, the quick intro is that, you know, this is, well, it's really, a, I guess you'd call it, what, a continuum of affordable housing. Yeah stakeholders. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what it is. We are the unlikely coalition. And that's what we were founded to be in 1931 by a woman named Mary Simkovich, who realized that 
nobody was really talking about affordable housing and half the people in New York were living in slums and she put together a coalition of builders and labor unions and religious leaders as well as the housing advocates of the day who were mostly social workers and made it about housing and jobs and the importance of creating jobs during the depression by building desperately needed housing and it was incredibly successful we helped write the housing section of the first infrastructure bill we helped write significant portions of the 37 act and we wrote most of the 49 act so we have a long history i you know sitting over my desk right now is the pen that linda johnson used to create hud which we were significant part of advocating for over 10 years so we have this rich history and inevitably in a 90 year old plus organization there are ups and downs and i came in five years ago when we were on one of those downs and as it is, has happened in the past our sweet spot is as a centrist organization who brings together very diverse stakeholders and when we move too far to the left or too far to the right people would rather be in organizations that better represent those segments and so we've moved closer to the center in the last five years and as a result we've become the place as i like to say housers can go to get things done and that means that we've got to figure out ways that we can work together what we agree on as opposed to what we don't and it's a lot easier than it looks because we all do share these common goals and we're out of the habit of working together but uh it's not hard to reawaken that and so that's been i think a lot of our success is bringing people on the left and the right together and say okay so how are we going to get this done because we both want more housing we all want better affordability and we recognize that housing has been just terribly underinvested in over a period of probably 20 years again thank you for your modesty i, I would say dave too i mean well first and foremost i welcome as many people as i can to gather in the middle because obviously this is a terrible political environment and there's little prospects in my mind of it improving absent fill in the blank and i'm terrified to fill in the blank so i'm thrilled to hear about uh, kind of the pivot if you will and gathering folks in the middle on these really important issues and it's hard to imagine look since you know americans have a bias towards living indoors everyone's constituents whether they're renters or homeowners have a vested interest in seeing a better housing environment whether you're you're renting and trying to you know make it more affordable whether you're trying to crack into the housing market i mean those are clearly bipartisan issues and i know you guys you especially have been spending a fair amount of time in the roosevelt room at the white house trying to hammer out some of these housing policies that would be acceptable or better yet advantageous to all parties that at least mortgage and real estate parties so now based on that do you have a you ever walk away and just think man if i had a, a magic wand what would you change about the current housing and mortgage markets just generally i mean just blue skies what's the big move from your mind dave it's a uh, production production and production and it is the policy equivalent of you know the old realtor saying that it's all about location 
we desperately need millions of additional units of housing that's affordable to working Americans. And uh, I think the estimate that I have been come to rely on is 3.8 million. Maybe it's a little higher, a little lower, but that's a lot of units. And we need to make the investments that are necessary. When I say the investments, I'm not just talking about taxpayer dollars. I think they're definitely tax-funded programs that we need to address. These are what they call tax expenditures, like the low-income housing tax credit and a new program called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Credit. These are tax credits that help promote the private sector to make more investments in affordable housing. But we also need to simplify the regulatory structure that we're all working under because we have a limited amount of taxpayer resources that we're spending and we need them to go as far as possible. And so we've got regulations like those for the home program, the housing choice voucher program, the capital magnet fund that are great programs that are widely supported and that are far too complicated to use. And we could make each dollar go much further and get more units out of those if we do the kind of regulatory reform that's necessary. And I'm happy to say that we've gotten a good response from the Biden administration. I think that we're blessed at HUD to have a secretary who was a, a Marsha Fudge, who was a mayor. And as I like to tell her, you know, you were a consumer of these programs and now you're managing them. And Adrian Todman, the deputy secretary who uh, ran a public housing authority and represented public housing authorities, and they understand the complexity of these regulatory structures. And we need to get new regulations in process. I think we're going to see something new in the home space soon and make it easier for business people to use these programs and we'll end up with more housing. We also need to simplify the mortgage financing system so that it is easier for lenders to make loans for homes that are less expensive. Right now, I think most lenders don't like making loans under $200,000 and by they usually lose money on making loans under 150 and that's just unacceptable i don't want to protect one home buyer from something bad from happening at the cost of having 10 credit worthy home buyers not be able to get a mortgage that just doesn't make any sense so we got to do this better smarter yeah i agree i mean the, the obviously the supply side has been a a nagging issue for a long time and everybody around the issue certainly is scratching their heads about how you really incent state and local governments to create policies that would create more density more affordable housing etc i mean the gses fannie and freddie have been i think post-conservatorship one of those interesting opportunities where they become probably the largest and most effective tools of public policy. So the implementation tools of public policy in terms of making credit available, pricing credit at attractive terms, subsidizing some of the goals-rich business, 
and so on and so forth. However, one of the areas that I'm, I recall them being statutorily prevented from really getting into is really in the construction and development side. So do you think that if by hook or by crook, by legislation, by creative interpretation, by some novel interpretation of the GSE charters, that they could or should get into the business of construction and construction development loans? I'm not talking about rehab, but paying for or financing rather the acquisition and the development of new housing. I do. I think that we need to be very careful about it. I want to really start slow with a pilot. I do think you may be able to interpret the charter to allow pilots for acquisition development and construction lending, AD&C lending. And the home builders have been pushing for that for a long time. But I also think there are other ways to support AD&C lending. And one of them is if you're financial institution and you're doing ADNC loans for affordable housing, that should count towards your CRA goals much more significantly than other activities. I'd like to really goose that so that in this, hopefully, we, we did mention this in our comment letters to the regulators on CRA reform, let's maximize the incentives for banks to be engaged in the lending that's hardest to do. But, you know, I also talked to Sandra Thompson, the director of FHFA about it. Her background was at FDIC and the Resolution Trust Corporation. And she is very aware of how AD&C lending, uh, when not well-regulated, can create enormous problems. And so we need to be smart about it and careful, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. Yeah, it's clearly an opportunity, and it's a unique opportunity in terms of juicing the financing would be through the GSEs. I certainly hope you're right and that the financial institutions are able to get a regulatory environment, a capital capital environment where they would be incented to do those loans, because it certainly would take a big obstacle out of the way. Obviously, it doesn't solve the problems around zoning and land use, but certainly baby steps. That's um, right. Well, zoning is a big problem. And, you know, I like to say that uh, exclusionary zoning is the last bastion of bipartisanship. Very liberal blue communities uh, like to talk about the importance of affordable housing. But when you actually turn to where affordable housing should be located in their community, then all of a sudden they've done a 180 degree turn. This is one of the reasons why. California and other progressive communities have extraordinarily exclusionary zoning and other rules. You know, in California, fee for developing land for housing can be $100,000 or more per unit. I have a friend who develops housing for low-income people in the Bay Area and Oakland in particular. And she pays about $120,000 a unit just to be able to apply for the rest of her permits. This is ludicrous. And what ends up happening is if you're in in the private sector uh, and you're building market rate housing, there's no way you're building anything that's even remotely affordable to the people who live in that community. And if you're someone um, like Linda who 
Linda Manalini at Eden Housing, who is building affordable housing with subsidies. Well, you're going to be using significantly more subsidies and creating fewer units. So I think communities really need to get honest about this. And these rules are all about keeping those other people out of our communities. And, you know, it's 21st century. We need to get over that. Isn't it maddening if you think about it? It's like, boy, I can't understand why people aren't building more or why there isn't more financing for housing general, first-time homebuyers and whatnot. You just mentioned huge one, which is these a builder or developer is upside down just before they even drive a shovel into the ground, right? Or drive right. a nail into a board. They're already going to be upside down substantially. You then pivot over to the other side of the equation, which is the mortgage side, where the cost to originate has never been higher. And the cost to originate a mortgage right now is oper- people are operating at a loss from the origination side as an average. If you apply it, of course, to first-time home buyers or smaller balance mortgages, it's going to give you a headache and uh, certainly stymie any sort of real progress in the development of new housing. That's exactly right. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about policy solutions, but we also need to be mindful to eliminate policy barriers. And there's plenty of that going on as well and more to come. Recently, the Department of Energy put out uh, regulations on manufactured homes. Now, they're supposed to be regulated by HUD. These regulations were around energy efficiency and taken in total, they significantly increase the cost of one of the most affordable sources of housing. And, you know, the carbon footprint, I'm sorry, but the carbon footprint of a manufactured house, particularly a new one, is a fraction of a single campesino in Brazil burning field for their crops. I mean, it is not material in any stretch of the imagination. And to make poor people, people of limited means, people who desperately need affordable housing pay for this priority that really is never going to have a material impact on climate change, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And we have to stop doing this kind of stuff and really start thinking more holistically and sensibly. Yeah, ideally, I love the idea of thinking holistically, but it seems like even the component parts individually are darn difficult (laughs) to solve for. So when you dump them all together, it quickly ends up in the too hard pile and you move on to something else until you have to address it. If you're a lawmaker or a policymaker, we obviously saw that with like GSE reform, where it was pretty, even the most ingenious, thoughtful housing reform plan fell on the rocks because of its complexity or crushed yeah. under its own weight. And at the end of the day, most of the policies, I don't think it's the case with what you're talking about, the policies on GSE reform ultimately manifested in higher prices for borrowers. So sometimes keeping it simple, stupid, obviously. Uh, yeah. Do we so- really want Congress creating a multi-trillion dollar market that is as complex as the mortgage finance system. You know, Michael Bright, who was involved in this, used to say that the best thing about Johnson Crapo, the legislation that came closest to doing this, was the three members of the banking committee could define negative convexity. (laughs) 
That's and three more than I could have figured. Three more, well, and I, I told that to one of the members who actually truly understood it, and he just laughed, and he said, I'm not sure there were three. And I said, I'm not sure you count because you already knew. So I think we've all learned a little more about interest rate risk recently, but I would not want any member of Congress who couldn't thoroughly debate the benefits and risks and rewards of interest rate risk and credit risk to have anything to do with that. And that's not an insult against them. It's more about the complexity of the system. We have a system that's been in place for over 80 years, and we need to continue to improve it and not tear it down and hope that we can build something in its place. Well, I'll tell you, I don't know if it's a dirty little secret, Dave, but it's certainly an unexplored topic is how broad the government footprint is and how much it's expanded since the housing crisis or the great financial crisis, obviously, in the 2008 realm. So leading up to the financial crisis, Fannie and Freddie had about 40% market share at their low, HUD probably 5%. Think about 2005, 2006. And you fast forward to today, where I would venture to guess that you're probably in the high 80s, tickling 90% of new originations that are, I'm air quoting, government-backed or insured, and including the GSEs as quasi-government-backed, and probably 75% of all servicing is for government-backed assets. So do you think that the government should be I mean, given its footprint, that they should just be empowered to do more to achieve some of these goals and objectives? Do you see it as a healthy thing that the government's that big? Or do you think that it could be setting us up for some sort of issue by virtue of, I don't know if it's call it pseudo-nationalization, but certainly domination by the federal government in the residential mortgage space? Well, the federal government plays a huge role in all kinds of aspects of our lives. And given the complexity of the mortgage finance system and the importance of homogeneity in many of these products. You know, the question is, do we want to have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage that is amortizing? I think we do. Do we want to have a stable housing finance system? I, I think we do. Do we want to have a housing system that can actually withstand the ups and downs of the rest of the economy? I would say we do. And what we learned in the experiment in private label securitization is that if you just leave it to the market, there are a lot of decisions that are reasonable by individual players, which have tremendous systemic failure baked into them if anything goes wrong. The other factor we have that we don't often talk about is, you know, the Federal Reserve Board has trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities that they have bought. And their total um, investment in MBS and treasuries is around $4.5 trillion. They have been starting to let that run off. They haven't really been selling it. And that has been a huge factor in, frankly, fueling inflation. You know, when we look at who's to blame for inflation, you know, they say, is it Republicans, Democrats, Trump or Biden? And I was like, yes, that's exactly the list. Everybody's had a hand to play in this, and we all need to have a play a hand in getting out of it, or we're going to end up with stagflation. 
that is a deep hole that we do not want to have to try to dig out of. Amen. Yeah, that's that's no fun getting out of stagflation. I shudder to to think about it, given all the other things that we're already having to deal with that are clear and present. Um, Most of us of a certain age remember what that was like. And for the rest of you, you may have to Google it, but it's <laughs> inflation with a recession. It breaks the rules of traditional economics. And what you end up with is a really lousy economy for many years. So speaking of bad economics, Dave, while folks are Googling that, feel free to Google uh, modern monetary theory. I'll have a pregnant pause there, Dave, to see if you throw up on that statement or have a positive response to that topic. Um, I threw up in my mouth, but I, I didn't actually. Go <laughs> All right. that way. The only reason you. I bring that up is because, you know, I was sitting- Tell me through, more, Tim. Well, I was sitting through some meetings, speaking at some meetings the other last couple of days. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's been around for a minute, I am a little bit troubled by, I mean, modern monetary theory, for anybody who doesn't know, the simplest explanation is the justification that as a source of currency, which the United States is a source of currency, the US dollar, and is really the reserve currency, which even better, then you really don't have to worry about debts and deficits so that you can print money because you don't have to worry about the risk and challenge of repayment because you can always produce more money, which is a little bit like the Fed and the Treasury in terms of that codependency that they have together feeding off of one another. But the reason that it becomes relevant is, of course, you see different examples of consumers seemingly spending beyond their means, homeowners right. potentially being compelled to spend beyond their means, renters being compelled to spend beyond their means. Those are troubling on its own. But as we're looking at where we rightfully should be thinking about every reasonable and every charitable thing we can do to keep people in their houses, just like you can't have mortgages or you can't have heaven without hell, you can't have mortgages yeah. without foreclosures in some cases. The challenges that I heard the last few days that were harkening me back to the modern monetary theory stuff was I'm hearing a lot of the, a lot of the same rhetoric that we used in the lead up to the financial crisis that we're using now, which would be, for example, that you know property values are not going to go down. They're going to stay the same or they're going to go up. And that, I'm generalizing, basically underwrites the aggressive policies around payment deferrals, partial claims, That's right. forbearances, these things, they do eat up equity. They do create holidays for people who have um, claimed to be and some that hopefully, well, they claim to be, whether they are or aren't, is debatable. I mean, they're, they're making the attestation, so you hope and trust that that's accurate. But this stuff does effectively become negative AM. And in the event that you have a property correction, then these things that seem to be perfectly sensible, and I wouldn't say casually dispensed, but they're not full doc. They're not hard to qualify for. They're really just no doc, examples of no docs. So the idea of no docs and the idea of equity stripping through these programs starts to give me some concern around that whole concept again. Uh, that ties into modern monetary theory, where we become less concerned about debts and deficits like those, because yeah, again, those are yesterday's sort of issues. Well, I mean, I think the technical term for this is bullshit. <laughs> you know, the two scariest words in economics are new paradigm, and um, you know what we find out over and over again 
is there is no new paradigm. This is the same old shell game. You know, I former colleague of ours, I remember after everything blew up with uh, Lehman and then Fannie and Freddie went into conservatorship, he said, you know, we couldn't believe that people who were getting liar's loans were actually lying. Yeah. And, you know, it's just we go through periods of this self-delusion. It's uh, It reminds me of the alcoholic who was told that there was going to be a pill that would cure alcoholism. And his response was, wow, if I took that pill, I could get drunk every day. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, I think you pretty well nailed it with that, Dave. Yeah, I mean that's it. It's just, I mean you can you can rationalize practically anything, and it's and good we do. Yeah, I mean, well, this is good natured stuff. It's not some venal fat cat, you know, twisting his his mustache, wondering how he can find a way to wrestle another nickel out of their customers or prospects or whatever. I mean, this is obviously very different than than something like that. This has got altruistic. This is good for it's good social policy. It's good economic policy, if it all works out. But it could be disastrous if, again, there's a scenario where the modern monetary theory proves to be wrong sooner than later, because I think eventually it'll be, it'll be figured out as obviously an ill-conceived economic concept. Well, we're seeing this in cryptocurrencies too. I think we, what we've learned is that there's enormous volatility. There have been a lot of ups. There's been really major downs, uh, depending on which currency you've invested in, because it is investing. You might as well be buying, you know, insurance policies on third generation derivatives. That's a you know roller coaster you can ride if you want, but you better have a strong stomach. And I wouldn't want our the financial health of the country dependent on it. People are going to say, oh, well, you're just old fashioned and you don't see the future. You know, it's uh, plenty of people wanted the buggy whip industry to continue when the car was invented. And I'm like, okay, you can tell yourself that story, but there's 10 more that make the case on how this actually ends up going. And there's a reason why we have a Federal Reserve and there's a reason why our currency is managed the way it is. And I think there probably will be a role for virtual currencies in the future, but we're going to pave the road for that with a lot of blood and blown up balance sheets along the way. And that's the, you know, the embryonic stage of capitalism. So I think with these kinds of things, we need to be very careful. And when we, when it comes to housing, you know, I don't mess with success. We have the most successful housing finance system in the world. End of story. Hey, man, I do think it's the last legitimate uh, wealth creation opportunity. So that's one of the main reasons I'm obviously behind any sort of responsible home ownership initiative, expanding home ownership. It's so about sustainable home ownership. We want to set people up for success. So, that means everybody isn't going to be able to become a homeowner when they want to. But we want to make sure that everybody who's ready to become a homeowner is able to do so and that we can encourage them to make that investment, to pay rent to themselves, and to maintain and have the resources to manage that increased wealth. You know, we did a great job in the 90s of expanding home ownership and helping people build wealth, but we never taught them wealth management. 
And as a result, once they had a couple hundred thousand dollars in equity in their homes, they were just right pickings for brokers in their community to set them up into serial equity stripping schemes on what looked like, you know, perfectly normal mortgages, but they weren't. So we have to be thoughtful about this and learn from our past mistakes. We know what it looks like when we do this right. We know what it looks like when we do it wrong. So we need to use that experience. Yeah, it's funny you you brought up the like the cash out refinances. It reminded me a long time ago, I was doing some research for an interview and um, you find that uh, the wealth effect from home ownership is different than the wealth effect from say, stock ownership or your 401k or along those lines, that the wealth effect from an increase in equity felt far more durable than say, the gains in the stock market, right? At least until you took it off the table. And as a consequence, people felt a lot more comfortable tapping some of that equity than they would in say the, the gains or equity in other markets. So they were spending 20 to 25%. This was going, I believe, going up to the mm-hmm. financial crisis. They were spending 20 to 25% of every, 20 to 25 cents of every dollar in increases in equity throughout the cycles. So you can yes. see that was obviously contributing to that. Well, but not in Texas, because in Texas, in Texas yeah, they had strict rules about how you could refinance equity out of your house. And they had limitations on it that ultimately, when the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas studied it, they found that compared to the economies of surrounding communities, cross-border communities, Texans did significantly better during the financial crisis than their neighbors did. So I think we do need to really look at the equity in our homes similarly to how we look at our IRAs. There are things that we can take that money out, pay for our kid's college, a health emergency, down payment on a house. At the same time, I think, you know, when you talk about equity in your home, retirement, home improvement, health emergency, those are all very reasonable causes of uh, doing an equity uh, loan that um, is going to take cash out. But refinancing a car loan on a 30-year note is crazy. And um, doing credit card workouts on your home loan uh, just makes no sense at all. And this is not how you finance buying new appliances. So I think we really need to be thoughtful about what we're using this tool for. And and there are plenty of good reasons, but I think one of the problems is that when lenders get really hungry and desperate for volume, it's easy to drift into areas that they know are not going to be healthy for them in the long run. And that's where reasonable regulation comes in. Yeah, I agree. And I'll tell you, I don't know. I think it's for as long as I've known that Texas had that law around no cash outs. And can you imagine how much hell the governor, the attorney general, the the Department of Financial Services has taken heat in Texas for probably two decades leading up to the financial crisis for not allowing cash out refinances all the way up to the chirps and uh, yeah. death of silence in, uh, say, 2008, 2009 market. I mean, that right. that demonstrates real convictions. Served real them well. 
Yeah, it's a but I think that they do have allowances for it. So you can um, uh, take money out of your house. It, there are rules. It's also interesting that it's been a part of the Texas banking culture since the days of Sam Houston and the Republic. So it goes back to the founding of the state and before. And so I think that's part of the reason why they were able to kind of hold the line on not opening that up. And wow, it really served them well. Yeah, I agree. It's been remarkable. I'm surprised more states haven't picked up on it, but I suspect the opportunity for more fees and taxes associated with refinance, particularly a cash out refinance mm-hmm. and the wills of their constituents is probably enough to stop them from uh, making any sort of radical changes like Texas. Yeah. So one of the things I was thinking about, Dave, and I'll, I'll let you go shortly, I promise. But, you know, obviously we were both at Fannie Mae pre-conservatorship. Mm-hmm. Fannie Mae was always, the whole time I was there, a very mission-driven organization. As we've touched on before, post-conservatorship, you know, the mission of to serve the underserved, obviously to make capital available in all markets every day, but the, the real emphasis on the mission stuff around serving the underserved has been kicked into really warp drive since conservatorship, especially obviously during the, the Biden administration. I mean, I, I kind of know how I feel about it, but how do you feel about the situation? Is it bittersweet with the takeover of the GSEs? Probably the bitter part, but the sweet part being all the good work that they're continuing to do and probably doing more of had they not been taken into conservatorship? Yes, I think that there was a long period where Fannie and Freddie really completely retreated from the affordable housing space and and efforts to expand mortgage markets. I think they made a lot of mistakes that they had to relearn a lot of this business. I think under the leadership of Sandra Thompson at FHFA, they have reemerged as players in this space. They still have a long way to go to get back to where they were in the 90s when they were in the early 2000s, very early 2000s, when they were making a lot of very safe loans and expanding home ownership, particularly for people of color. I recently had a meeting with some officers at Fannie Mae this week, and they're doing some really exciting things and planning some really exciting things, and it's incredibly refreshing. But, you know, credit box is still very tight, and there's still a lot of constraints. We are making very safe loans, and all the numbers show that is true, and you can absolutely make more affordable mortgages safely. We want these loans to be sustainable. We want people to succeed. And I think one of the enduring false narratives of the crisis was that Fannie and Freddie caused the crisis because of their affordable housing goals. And just numerous studies have shown, including the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report, have shown that's absolutely not the case. You know, in our own experience at Fannie Mae, they were chasing the Alt-A lemmings off the cliff. They, those were not really loans that were designed for affordable housing. And it was a race for market share competing with subprime lending that was stealing customers from them who were getting safe loans uh, just a few years earlier. So I think that there's a lot of room for them to continue to 
innovate. And the real innovation at Fannie and Freddie, I think, occurs when they're working with their lenders because they're not very good at creating products, but they're great at scaling other people's successful products. And that's uh, where I think Fannie and Freddie need to be working with lenders and letting them innovate and scaling the successes. And that's the recipe, I think, to really expand the home ownership rate in a healthy way. I agree. And I, I do think that as instruments of public policy go, the GSEs are best suited to serve the uh, Biden administration's housing goals. So both the social and economic aspects of it. It's not to say that HUD doesn't do, you know, yeoman's work and an admirable job, but obviously they're, uh, they're a, a true federal agency, appropriated agency with technology that probably needs uh, a refresh. I'm waiting for someone to laugh. I'm just joking. Yeah, it needs some help. Um, so they need GSE them. They've made some progress in the technology area, but you know it is fundamentally a government agency. It has government regulations. It is not allowed to use its profits to reinvest in their infrastructure. It really, um, there's only so far you can take it. I think they have excellent leadership today, mm -hmm. and uh, we could definitely see a lot more improvement over time. There's a lot of things that Congress just isn't going to let them do, which is unfortunate. But ultimately, the private sector, um, FHA serves a very, and Ginny May serve a very important role, and uh, they need to be healthy and safe and sound and well-managed. But the private sector is going to ultimately do the lion's share of this work and going to have the ability to to both manage risk responsibly as well as mitigate losses much more effectively. I agree. Yeah, that's it. I mean, they're great teams there. And I do also agree that they were they were casualties of the housing crisis. They certainly I mean, I think when you look at Biden's housing team. You know, Sandra Thompson, Marsha Fudge, you got Elena McCargo over at Ginny May, the Deputy Secretary, Todman, you've got Julia Gordon. I mean, this is the best housing team that I've ever worked with in my entire career. So my biggest concern is that uh, they get a certain amount of time to do this work, and I want to make sure they get as much done as they can, because they certainly have brought the experience you need to do it right. Agreed. And also they were dealing with it, doing these things in an environment where the federal agencies naturally are the ones who are going to be writing rules and regs around interpretive guidance around legislation. That's their that's their guidepost. In the absence of legislation in this dysfunctional right. environment, then they have a tendency to go out on their own and, and create these policies that historically had worked at often at cross purposes with other agencies because they weren't tightly coordinated. They weren't communicating openly and often. That is less the case, even though, again, we have by far the most dysfunctional legislative environment, and you see a ton of policies coming out of the agencies, and notwithstanding, again, no legislation is necessarily to tie it to. However, they've been very well coordinated. And I think that that speaks volumes to this team and the administration's management of these teams, which is impressive. Well, you know, you mentioned the Roosevelt Room, and we have done a couple of meetings there with the Biden economic team and housing team. And they had all their principal players there. They had the heads of the home builders, the realtors, 
multifamily housing council, also um, mortgage bankers, and they had the Low Income Housing Coalition and the National Fair Housing Alliance, among others. So we're all in that room. That's a pretty broad spectrum. And, you know, when you've got Diane Yantel, who's head of the National Low Income Housing Coalition, saying her piece, and then Jerry Howard from the Home Builders follows her comments on supply by saying, yeah, I agree with everything she said, that turns a couple of heads. And I think this administration has been better about reaching out and getting input from the experts and bringing a more diverse group of people into the same room than any administration that I've worked with in my career, Democrat or Republican. Well, that's some comfort in that, Dave. We'll see. It's all about the results, isn't it, Tim? It is indeed, my friend. It is indeed. Well, I'll let you go, man. As a closing thought, I mean, the reason I started this podcast largely was because I find DC just to be a fascinating place. And it's more fascinating when it's working to your advantage as opposed to working against you, which is just a god awful experience. And, uh, but so given your experience all over the place and around DC, I mean, when you look back on these things, do you have any guiding wisdom for folks who are coming to DC to? pitch their stories or to advocate for a certain thing or not? Because in my experience, you know, the target that you think that you have in mind for a conversation is probably not the right target. At a minimum, it needs to include other people. And you need to have a story that resonates with the target audience that you have, kind of like, you know, Bob Dylan. Everybody's got to serve somebody. So what are you working on and trying to solve for that's going to help me and my constituents? How How do you think about or guide folks when they come to DC about messaging and managing their agenda? Well, I think there's two things that are most important. One is know the other guy's wish list well. What do they want? What's in their interest? And what on that list do I agree with? Because that's where you want to start. And the other thing that I learned in foreign policy is the importance of confidence building measures, start small and work on the things to build a track record of working together so you get to know each other. One of the reasons that you occasionally read uh, in peace talks when two sides are literally at war and you hear that they were arguing over the size and shape of the table and you easy to think, well, that's the most ridiculous thing. These people are killing each other and they're arguing over who's going to sit where. But the reality is, is that that is a very important first step in giving them an opportunity to learn how to compromise in a way that is not going to actually take anything away from them. And that's the first step to going to that next step of the simplest component. When I was at the State Department during the uh, Madrid peace talks, you know, they got very close to actually coming up with a sustainable solution for peace in the Middle East. It didn't happen because of, you know, the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin. But, you know, they started small and they built up. And, you know, in the back room, Dennis Ross was working on maps for water pipes and how they were going to share water, which was the hardest issue people often think is Jerusalem, but it's it's actually not. It's water. If you can work out water, you can come up with a solution for Jerusalem because uh, 
people can share Jerusalem, but they can't share the same glass of water. And so we need to start small, build up, and work towards the harder things, and we'll get things done along the way. And I think that's true whether you're dealing with a civil war or you're dealing with housing policy or anything else. I want to know what you want because that's where I can start and we can now start to have a conversation. This is all about trading self-interest. I love that. So it reminds me of, I think it was a quote from uh, our former colleague and uh, I think our mutual friend, David Jeffers. Mm-hmm. We had a similar conversation around this and you were talking about want to know your story. Coming to DC, David had he was running a communications group for my my old company that we sold to Citus AMC. And he was like, when you're coming to DC, you need to think about your story in a way that's so short and compelling that the board distracted and self-important, which is damn near everybody in DC says, I understand, or I want to hear more. I thought that was pretty solid. Yours is great too, but that was pretty good. Thank you. I love David. And he uh, always says away with the words. When I started at Fannie Mae, he was my first mentor there. Yeah, he's a remarkable guy. Wonderful guy. I think he's singing this weekend. It's his new trade. It is indeed. Very impressive. He's got the voice. and He's definitely got the chops and the look. So I have no doubt that he'll pull it off. All right, my friend. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks uh, for having me, Jim. Yeah, everything you've done at NHE is remarkable. I mean, your resume speaks for itself. I'm certainly thrilled that I know you and that I get to call you a friend and call on you from time to time for things like this. So I appreciate it. Well, you are and always uh, feel free. It's um, anytime uh, you ask me for anything, I know it's going to be thoughtful and reasonable. And I hope you feel the same way about me. That's a lot of pressure. All right, Dave. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Take care.